Good morning. Great to be with you today. Uh, my name is Bryce Hales. I'm the pastor here at Resurrection OC. And um, I would love to invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. If you have a Bible, if you didn't bring a Bible, there's a blue Bible on the ground um, near you at the end of the, the row of chairs. And we're going to read um, Genesis 3, starting at verse 8. Um, this, uh, the context here is um, in the first chapter of Genesis, God creates the heavens and the earth. And he repeats over and over that it was good, it was good, and it was very good. And in um, Genesis chapter 2, uh, we see um, the goodness of relationships and man and woman created in the image of God. And then in chapter 3, rebellion enters into the world. And the human race uh, turns its back on God. And so uh, we're going to read starting in verse 8 immediately after that happens. So let me invite you to stand with me. And we're going to read God's word together. And they, Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed Are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field? On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is God's word. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word, and I pray that as we uh, give our attention to it in these next few moments, that you would help us to see um, the, the awful reality of our rebellion against you, so that even in just the, the starkness of these words, we could see the promise, the hope, the goodness of the gospel, the, the promise that you hold out to us and ultimately fulfill in Jesus. Would you help us understand more completely how you have loved us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, please. Well, have you ever made a mistake that actually turned out to be the path to success? Have you ever found that your um, plan B actually ended up being the the solution, even though you didn't know it? Um, Many... Excuse me. I didn't have a cold in my throat this morning. (laughs) Uh, Many important discoveries have been, you know, discovered by accident. Penicillin was discovered by mistake when the scientist who discovered penicillin had thrown away the project that he was working on because he thought it was a failure and he discovered penicillin in the trash can. Uh, The guy who invented the microwave was working actually on an experiment with radar after World War, World War II. 
and he was trying to build this machine and it wasn't working, but he discovered that the candy bar in his, in his pocket had melted. And so to test it out, he threw popcorn. I don't know why he went to immediately popcorn, but threw popcorn in the microwave and it popped and the rest is history. Chocolate chip cookies, Coca-Cola, potato chips were all discovered essentially on accident. And of course, all turned into something successful. Uh, many famous people that we think of uh, as incredibly successful people have gone through long periods of what would seem to us like failure. J.K. Rowling um, was a single, unemployed, depressed mother. And uh, in her spare time, she would go to this coffee shop and write these stories that we now know as the Harry Potter series. Um, J.K. Rowling once described herself as the biggest failure she knew. She's now richer than the Queen of England. Um, she's the wealthiest author in the world. Um, this from a depressed, unemployed failure, by her own words. Michael Jordan, who we know as you know, the most, you know, kind of this like iconic, successful athlete was cut from his high school basketball team because the coach told him he wasn't tall enough to play basketball. Abraham Lincoln, I mean, this is maybe the one of the most striking, you know, Abraham Lincoln, one of the most iconic presidents who led uh, the United States through one of the most kind of tumultuous periods in, in our history as a nation, was born into poverty. He lost eight elections. I mean, think about that. He ran for office eight times, never won, and then was elected president. He failed in two businesses. He suffered a nervous breakdown, which left him depressed and bedridden for six months. And yet he became the one who would lead our country through uh, such a difficult uh, time and be just so monumentally important in the history of our country. Often what feels like failure is actually the path to success. Often what we think of as the plan B in our life, the thing that we turn to when everything else has has failed ends up being the path forward and I'm I'm giving all these examples because this morning we are wrapping up our origin series where we have been looking at the first three chapters of the Bible and uh, it's been a great story it started off great at least where God created a good world and in the first act of the Bible uh, the creation story. God created a world that was uh, that is beautiful and wonderful and full of life and teeming with possibility. And then He creates human beings in His own image, and He gives us good relationships and meaningful work, and life is good. And then we saw in Act Two the fall that sin enters into the world, as the human race turns its back on God and divorces God and rebels against God, and it's, it's a disaster. It's a disaster as we turn our back on the one who is the source of life, and sin enters into the world and brings death and shame. So those are the first two chapters of the Bible, first three chapters of the Bible, and this morning what I'm going to try to do is tell you the rest of the story, okay? So strap in, because um, we've got a lot of ground to cover. But I introduced this topic like I did because um, as beautiful as it is to see that the plan B is often what God uses to lead us into the future. 
Um, and as much as it's possible, and there's, there are stories in all of our lives where God has used our failure to bring us closer to him. There's a way in which we could read this story as the world was good, sin entered in the world, and then God scrambled and came up with a rescue plan. And what I want you to hear is that the story of the Bible is not God's plan B. The story of the rest of the Bible, Genesis 4 onward, is not the story of God at the last minute going, I didn't see this coming, and now I've got to figure out how to salvage something out of this mess of humanity. But this is actually God's plan from the beginning. From the very beginning, it was God's intention to know you, to love you. This did not take God by surprise. God is not the author of sin. Um, Yes, our rebellion against him is real, and we are the ones who bear responsibility for it. And yet it didn't take God by surprise. He didn't say, oh great, what am I going to, how am I going to make something of this mess? God's action in revealing himself to us and ultimately in coming to earth himself in Jesus was not something he pulled together at the last minute. It was God's plan to love you and to call you to himself and to make you his own. This wasn't a mistake. That was God's plan all along. And the word that the Bible uses to describe God's plan A is the word covenant. And that's what I want to spend the next few minutes talking about this morning. The covenant of God is the storyline that drives really the narrative of the Old Testament, especially, but of course the the New Testament is just an explanation of of the covenant in the Old Testament. Um, The story of God advancing his covenant is literally written on every page of the Bible. And the tension of, of who will be the one to fulfill the covenant and will God turn his back on his people when they have turned their back on him is the kind of driving tension that drives the climax of every story in the Old Testament. And you have to get this because without it, you will be a fundamentally insecure person. Um, You will always be questioning whether God and everyone in your life is going to find out about who you really are and turn their back on you. And that may um, manifest itself as insecurity, depression, or it may manifest itself as false bravado and this kind of machismo, like everything's great, I don't need anybody. But ultimately it's insecurity. And so our choice is covenant or insecurity. And what I want you to see this morning is the promise of God as he fulfills his covenant throughout human history. So the first thing that I want you to see is what a covenant is. And uh, let me give you a a quick example of what a covenant looks like before I kind of explain it. This week, um, some of you know I'm on a soccer team and some people in our church are on the soccer team. And uh, this last, I think it was Tuesday night, we had a game and it was scoreless throughout the first half. And uh, finally, in the second half, our team scores, and Jason and I are like, yes! And we're high-fiving each other, and we go, we did it! That was awesome! But Jason and I were both on the sideline when our team scored. (laughs) I had, like, cramped up. I was out of the game. I was sick. And yet there we are on the sideline, high-fiving each other, like we had just done something amazing. Why? Because... When you're on a team, 
and your team scores, you all get the credit, whether you did it or not. And that's exactly the way a covenant works. When our um, God created Adam, the first man to be our representative. And as long as Adam obeyed God, we had life, but Adam didn't obey. And uh, he didn't want to serve God, and he rebelled against God. He wanted to be independent from God, and in doing that, he separated both himself and everyone who is united to Adam, which is the human race. Uh, he separated us from the source of life. Now, Adam didn't think that's what he was doing. He was looking for a source of life that was autonomous from God, independent from God. He wanted to do his own thing, which is why we want to do our own thing. He thought he was seeking life somewhere else, but because God is the only source of life, the moment that Adam separated himself from God, his death, and therefore ours, was certain. It's like the worst soccer game in history. And as our representative, Adam left God and death entered into the world and insecurity and shame enter into our existence. And the result eventually is that we all experience death. And God responds not by saying, well, that was a fun experiment. Let's toss that out. But God responds by sending a second Adam. And we don't see this immediately, but God immediately in Genesis 3 responds by promising to send the second Adam who will crush the head of the serpents. The second Adam will succeed where the first Adam has failed. And because or if we are united to him in covenant, then we will get the benefits of his victory. And that is what the Bible means when it talks about covenant. Covenant is a an old, it's not a word that we use a lot. And um, you might say, you know, isn't there a better word that we could use instead of covenant? Um, but the reality is that there's just no word that really captures all that uh, covenant conveys. Um, a covenant is a relationship of law and love. Um, relationship alone is too flimsy of a word because while Relationship implies love and intimacy and, and you know, person, interpersonal knowing of one another. We also know that it's so easy, it's too easy for us to just bail on our relationships when things are hard. And yet a contract conveys the sense of, of well, at least it could convey the sense of permanence, right? Um, and that we're going to stick through this even when things are tough and yet it's cold and it's formal and it's impersonal. But a covenant combines aspects of each, and in so doing, it transcends both. A covenant is a relationship of both law and of love. Uh, you see the intimacy in the covenant, because throughout the Bible, God calls um, his people, he calls them my people. Um, I mean, think about it. I could tell you the story about a boy, and it might be interesting, but if I tell you a story about my boy then, you know, there's a difference, right? There's, there's love and intimacy, and I, this is a boy that I care about. And that's the way that God refers to us. We are not a people. He refers to us as my people. Um, there's intimacy. God is invested in us. There's intimacy in the covenant, but there's also a legal aspect. In Deuteronomy 29, God says to Israel, he says, I'm entering into you, entering into this covenant with you today, and he says that I'm entering into this covenant by swearing an oath. 
Now, swearing an oath is not the language of a relationship necessarily, right? It's the relationship of the courtroom. And so um, what God is saying is that this relationship is legally binding. It doesn't rest on the whims of the people entering into the relationship. Uh, It does not depend on what side of the bed you wake up on on any given day. The whole point of a covenant, the whole point of a contract is that you can't just back out of it even if you change your mind. And so a covenant is a personal relationship that is made more loving and more intimate because there is a legally binding aspect to the relationship as well. Um, There's lots of ways, you know, examples we could give of this, but the clearest, I think, is marriage. And so, I mean, um, as a pastor, I get the privilege of officiating weddings. It's one of my favorite parts of my job. And I love it when we get to the section on the vows because it's really the only part of the service that the bride and groom speak, and so they just blubber through the whole thing. (laughs) And um, I've been blubbering through most of it up until that point, and so it's good to have company. (laughs) No, it's, you know, it's moving, right? But um, when you marry a person, um, I mean, what are you promising in those vows? Um, You're saying, for rich or for poor, in sickness and in health, in wants or in plenty, until death do us part. You're so overwhelmed by this promise you're making, but what you're saying is, I'm standing in front of everybody I care about, looking at this person that I care about more than anybody in the world, and I'm promising to stand by you when life is way worse than it is right now. And you enter into that covenant relationship with your spouse in, in a way that actually results in a legal transaction, right? You're not just saying, I love you. I mean, nobody today, at least in you know, most Western contexts, get mar- gets married without love, right? So you love the person before you got married, but you enter into the covenant of marriage, and there is a legally binding aspect um, now to the re- that relationship. You're saying, I promise to stand with you even when things aren't that good. I'm binding myself to you. I'm going to take on your debt. I'm going to give you all that I have. And our intimacy and love will actually be greater because I have promised to be with you even when I don't feel like being with you. Does that make sense? And so that's the way that God responds to sin. That's the way that God responds to the human race when we say, God, We want to do our own thing. Excuse me, but I'm going to turn my back on you and walk away. God says, how about a covenant? (laughs) How about we enter into this relationship of law and love? Now, there's a problem for us because as a culture in the moment that we live in, we um, we now shape everything around our own personal happiness. And really, like, we, we treat marriage that way in so many cases, too. Um, but we, we, um, we have made it to the point where everything is basically about me and my happiness. And so I come to you and I say, well, you know, I'm in this with you as long as it works for me. But the moment it doesn't work for me, then I'm out. And uh, the way that we do this with God is we say something like, well, I'm a spiritual person, but I'm just not a religious person. Um, what are we saying when we say that? Well, we, we're saying, well, I believe in God, and I want to know him, and I want to have a, a relationship with him. 
but I don't want to go to an institution. I don't want anyone to tell me what to believe. I don't want anybody's input in my life. I want to be uh, the. I want to have the freedom to determine what's right and wrong for me. I want to know God, but just like back the heck off and leave me alone. What we're saying is, I want a relationship with God. That's a consumer relationship, a relationship where I get out of it what I want, and I can turn my back on it if I'm not happy. But the problem is that um, the Bible says that's impossible because God only relates to us in terms of covenant. We don't know how to embrace this uh, mixture of law and love, but that's um, the only way God actually comes to us. So that's what a covenant is, and that sort of leads us to uh, understanding the, the problem of the covenant or the question, this mystery that, again, is throughout the Old Testament. And, um, and it's this, God's response to our rebellion is to propose a covenant relationship with us. Uh, but the problem is this, that every covenant has requirements. And we, again, we see this in marriage, right? I mean, it's, this is even in the Bible, um, that if one of the parties to a marriage is unfaithful, then the covenant is broken, right? There, there are requirements to enjoin um, the goodness, the blessing of the covenants. And yet if we don't fulfill our obligation, uh, if we don't live up to our end of the covenant, then the covenant is broken. And the result is, um, the Bible would say, curses. There are blessings for obedience and there are curses for disobedience. And so the problem is this. How in the world are we ever going to maintain a covenant relationship with a God who is perfect? Um, how in the world are we going to live up to a, a covenant relationship with a God who is perfect when we are so far from being perfect? And what will God do when we fail to live up to our end of the, uh, of the covenant? What will God do when we fail to live up to the terms of the covenant? And this is a tension throughout the Old Testament because the Bible, frankly, does not answer the question clearly. In fact, the Bible gives like opposite answers to the question. Um, some places you look at in the, in the Old Testament and God says, I will be faithful to you no matter what. And though you turn your back on me, though you run after other gods, um, though you ignore me, though you, uh, you know, though you utterly fail, I will love you, I will forgive you. And I will still be faithful to my word. And then there are other places in the, in the Old Testament um, where God says, I cannot bless a disobedient people. And I will never forgive if you turn your back on me. Um, in Psalm 103, just in one psalm, it says, on the one hand, it says, The Lord is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide. He will not always keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities, right? So it's saying, if, even if you disobey, God is going to forgive. But if you keep reading in the same psalm, a couple verses later, it says, The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness comes to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commands. Deuteronomy 29 says, The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man, and the curses written in this book will settle upon him, and the Lord will blot out his name 
from under heaven if you do not obey everything that I have commanded you. So you understand the problem. <laughs> now, um, of course, like we all want to say, but he's gonna forgive, right? Like, yeah, he's just all talk or whatever. Like it's just, he doesn't, no, like God is a God of love, right? And the only reason we think that is because you know, we all live in America in the 21st century where we think everything is about us. But think about this for a second. Last week, I, um, I, I used the illustration of Larry Nasser, this um, man who was convicted of uh, abusing hundreds of girls and young women who came to see him in his medical practice. And um, this kind of made headlines in the news because the judge in this case invited any victim who wanted to come and say whatever she wanted to say to this man and to give um, his victims as long as they wanted to speak their peace and to address him uh, before she sentenced him. And there was actually, I don't know if you saw this, there was actually a father who um, <laughs> interrupts his daughter and says, Judge, will you give me one minute alone in a locked room with this man? And when the judge says no, this father, which is awful and yet beautiful, races at this man who has abused his daughters. And I say that just because we have to feel the weight of this. Can you imagine if getting to the end of that trial, the judge looks at the victims and says, I've heard all that you have to say, but I've chosen to forgive this man. And he is going to go free. You know what? That judge would not be long for this world, would she? Because that is not justice. And a just judge is wrong to forgive those who are guilty. So now do you understand the problem? How will God, who is far more just than this judge ever will be, how does God, how does God forgive people who are guilty? It's the central question of the Old Testament, and it's not that clear. But throughout the Old Testament, God continues to renew his promise to his people. And so we see this with, just in a hint with Adam here, and then we see this with Noah, God renews his covenant promise. And with Abraham, and with Moses, and with David, and over and over again. And every time there is this hint of how God will resolve this problem, how will God be both just and justify those who are guilty? And, um, I mean, there's so many places we could look to. But, uh, you know, in Genesis, um, if you, if you, I don't, you know, I'm not assuming everybody's super familiar with the Bible, but there's this place in Genesis, well, in Genesis 12, God comes to Abraham And he says, out of all of the people on earth, I'm going to choose you, Abraham, to be my people. And your descendants will be my people, and I will be your God. And through your offspring, I'm going to bless everyone on the earth. And then um, Abraham responds by immediately running to Egypt and pimping out his wife. Like, literally, that's what he does. And then he does it again, and God says... Abraham, I'm going to be your God, and I'm going to bless you. And Abraham says, God, how will I know that you are going to actually bless me? And so there's this weird, weird thing that happens in Genesis 15 that 
we just totally don't understand. Where God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I want you to take a bunch of animals. And I want you to take some bulls and some goats and some birds. And you're going to cut them in two. And you're going to arrange the pieces opposite each other. And we have no idea what's going on. But um, the scholars tell us that in the ancient Near East that this was, this was the way a king would enter into a covenant relationship with a lesser lord, okay? So you've got a great king and a, a lord who's going to come and be subject to him. And the lord is going to get protection from the king by promising his allegiance to the king. And so they would set up these animals, and then the lesser lord would walk through the middle of these animals, and he would swear allegiance to the greater king. And why is he walking through those animals? He's saying, I'm like symbolically, we are saying here that if I fail to uphold my end of the covenant, that I will be torn to pieces just as these animals have been torn to pieces. That's so weird, right? But what's even weirder than that is this. So in Genesis 15, this is happening. Abraham has cut these animals in two. And he's waiting there and the sun sets and he sees this. Um, smoking pot and a torch that passes through the middle of these um, of these two animals or these halves of the animals, and we read this and go, "That is the weirdest thing. What in the world is going on?" But what's going on is that God Himself is the one who is passing through the middle, and He is swearing uh, His covenant faithfulness to Abraham and Abraham's offspring. And what's even stranger than the great king passing through the middle of those animals that himself is that Abraham is never actually called to walk through the middle of them. And Abraham understands what is just lost on us, that God is saying to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to enter into a covenant relationship with you where I'm going to be faithful to you. And I am going to uphold my end of the covenant. But I'm also promising that I will uphold your end of the covenant as well. And God is walking through the middle of those animals that have been slaughtered and saying, Abraham, if you do not uphold your end of the covenant, then I will be torn to pieces for you. And of course, that's just a hint of what we see more fully and more completely. When Jesus comes, and in Jesus, God himself comes in the flesh, And in his life, he obeys perfectly. Why? Because he is the one who's fulfilling in every single detail the terms of the covenant that we, like, I mean, we don't even try, right? We cannot fulfill it. And then he goes to the cross. And on the cross, he is literally torn apart. Why is Jesus torn apart when all he did was obey? Well, he is fulfilling not just his end of the covenant, but he's fulfilling our end as well. And so on the cross, Jesus Christ is torn apart so that all that is left, he receives the curse of the covenant so that all that is left for you and for me is the blessing. For God to look on you and smile and say, you have done everything that I have asked you Why? No, I didn't do any of that. Well, Jesus did it on your behalf. He kept the covenant for you. He kept his end and he kept your end. That is amazing. Well, so what does this mean for us? Well, um, there's three things that I want you to see, three implications of this 
quickly if you understand what it means that God has upheld not just his end of the covenant, but yours as well. There are three implications, I think, for us. And the first is this, that, that if you understand what God has done for you in fulfilling his covenant, then you are free to obey. Then you are free but you are free to obey. Now you might be going, what? That doesn't make sense because we have such a stupid relationship with the word freedom um, where we think freedom means that like freedom is to just do whatever you want. So freedom to obey, it's like that's a contradiction in terms. But Galatians 3.13 says that on the cross, Jesus set us free from the curse of the law. And what that means is that you are no longer under the curse. You are free. You are free from the obligation to obey God in order to earn his love. So you can obey him. (laughs) You're free to fail, but you're also free to obey. I mean, think about this. I, um, I talk to people so often where, you know, people say, I mean, does God really... I mean, I mean, let's just pick, you know, anything. Uh, you know, when, when the Ten Commandments say, you shall not commit adultery, does God really, I mean, surely God does not mean don't have sex with anybody unless you're married to them. Yeah, that's actually what he means. Um, when God says, give away your money, <laughs> surely he doesn't mean, yes, that's actually what he means. When God says, I want you to love your neighbor as yourself. Like, you don't mean, God, the people who live next. Yes, the people who are actually your neighbors. Um, Because Jesus has perfectly fulfilled the law of God. You are not under the law of God as a way to earn the approval of God. And so you don't have to live with this kind of like, oh, surely God doesn't really mean that. No, that's really what he means. And yet he knows you're not going to do it. And Jesus did it for you. And therefore you can love him by actually obeying him. And you're free to fail too. Freedom to obey and freedom to fail. The second thing, second implication is this. If you understand the covenant, then you can repent. Um, Repentance is simply acknowledging God, I am wrong, and I am sorry, and I'm turning around. And I'm going to say this in a way that is probably going to strike us as a little bit odd. Um, but there is a reality that, I mean, we are a part of, uh, as individuals, we are a part, that we have many different kinds of covenant relationships in our lives. And for some of us, um, I mean, for Christians, the Bible is clear that the church is our kind of primary covenant relationship. Uh, that's the way we experience our covenant relationship with God. But we are also people with like heritages, right? And cultures. And um, we, we, um, you know, we identify with the tradition of our jobs, right? Um, and yet every single one of these groups or covenants that we are a part of uh, tends to bring with it both positives and negatives, and we often embrace the positive aspects of our culture, our heritage, our, you know, our vocation. And yet when anybody says anything critical of like the negative aspects of our past, we get all protective and yeah. And if you understand the covenant and what Jesus has done for you, then you can repent. You can be honest and embrace who your people are in the good and in the bad. 
um, the denomination that our church is a part of, the uh, Presbyterian Church in America, um, was uh, was founded in 1973, and uh, in the South. And the honest history is that racism is a huge part of the founding of our denomination. And last year, I think a year and a half ago, our denomination voted to repent of our, the racism that was a part of the history of our church. And there was a lot of controversy about that. And a lot of the controversy goes, I mean, I wasn't a racist, right? I didn't do those things. I mean, I'm a pastor. I wasn't born in 1973. I didn't do any of that. But you can't look at our history and embrace all of the wonderful positives of, of our history and just kind of ignore the ugliness of it too. And embracing the beauty, beauty of our heritage also uh, requires, I think, us to turn and say, but there's also this ugliness and we repent of it as well. Okay, final thing is this, that if you understand the covenant, it leads to church membership. Now, you might be going, huh, I didn't really see that coming, but um, throughout the Bible, um, God clearly and consistently refers to his people, not not saying you individually will be my people, but y'all will be my people. Um, God is clear that he enters into covenant, not with us as individuals, but with us as a people. In our sort of individualistic way of thinking in the 21st century uh, leads us to this place where we think it's just about me and Jesus, but the reality is that's not really in the Bible. Um, David Brooks is a, um, is a journalist. A, um, he, for most of his career, he's not actually writing as a Christian, although I think he's become a Christian in the last couple of years. I don't speak for David Brooks in case there was any um, confusion on that point. But um, in an article in December, uh, he, he, he said something I think is really profound about the history of the United States. He says, throughout the mo- most of American history, our society was built on the concept of covenantal relationships. At our foundation, we were a society with strong covenantal attachments to family, community, creed, and faith. And then on the top of them, we built democracy and capitalism that celebrated liberty and individual rights. The deep covenantal institutions gave people the capacity to use their freedom well. The liberal institutions gave them that freedom. Now, of course, since, I don't know, pick a date, but like since the 60s, the United States has moved in this increasingly anti-institutional direction where we think that it's all about individual liberty. So we basically, what, what David Brooks is saying was that you have to have institutions that carry on the legacy of, of the covenant in order to have freedom, the individualistic freedom to actually live free lives on the basis of it. But we've turned our back on the institutions that provided that foundation. We've turned our back on the church. We've turned our back on like family, uh, neighborhood, um, you know, work as a place where we actually, um, you know, stay when it's hard for more than a couple of moments. <laughs> um, and we've moved in this increasingly individualistic direction. 
And he says this, I think, which is really profound. He says, um, right-wingers want to maximize economic choice. Left-wingers want to maximize lifestyle choice. So we're, whichever side of the political spectrum you're on, we are moving in this increasingly anti-institutional direction, and yet we're losing our freedom. It's crumbling underneath us because there is no institution supporting it that can kind of bear the weight of all that our freedom requires. Without the secure foundation of covenant relationships, individual freedom is evaporating. So if you understand the covenant, accountability in light of the gospel is actually a good thing. Um, being a part of a church, like joining a church and saying, I'm going to be a member of this church. I'm not just going to show up when it suits me. I'm going to actually show up and I'm going to help out. I'm a part of this. This is who I am. It makes all the sense in the world. Several years ago, when I was a college pastor, I, um, there's a freshman a guy who started coming to our ministry. And um, in the course of this Bible study that I was leading, uh, we began, he became a Christian. He put his trust in Jesus, and we got to a point in the Bible that was talking about baptism. And uh, we began to talk about baptism is this sign of entrance into the covenant community. That's what it means. God puts his name on us in baptism. And so we enter into the church, and we become members of the church in baptism. And this young man, his name is Colby, said to me, you know, I don't know if I'm ready to get baptized not because I don't trust in Jesus, but because he's like, I'm kind of an idiot. And I have no faith that I'm not going to at some point turn my back on Jesus. And I said, that's exactly why you should get baptized. Not because, not because you believe you're never going to stumble, but because you know that you will. And when that happens, you need more than the knowledge that you made a decision at some point in your past. You need to know that there are people who will come and get you and find you and bring you back to Jesus. And so getting baptized now is sort of like saying in a moment of sanity, I know that in the future I might lose it. And when I do, I'm giving you permission to come around me and remind me of what's actually true. That's what we need, guys. That's what I need from you. That's what we all need from each other. And so let me conclude by simply reminding you that this is not God's plan B. So let's be the church together. Let's be the church for Ladera Ranch and South Orange County, even when nobody's paying attention and our community around us doesn't seem like they notice or care. Let's be the church when it's not that convenient. Let's commit to be for one another, to correct one another, to encourage one another, to support and embrace one another. Let's now, in a moment of sanity, remind ourselves that we need this, not because we're never going to fail, but because we know that we will. And when we do, we need the church to come around us and remind us of the faithfulness of the God who has been there for us all along. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your promise. Thank you for the way that you respond to us in our failure, in our sin, in our shame, in our running after things that look like life to us but ultimately lead to death. 
that you come to us with an even greater promise. Thank you that in Jesus you fulfill your promises and you uphold not just your end of the bargain, but ours as well. And God, I pray that as we are reminded of Jesus and as we look to the cross where he was torn to pieces so that we never would be, that you would enable us um, to respond by being people who are willing uh, to take on covenant promises. God, would you make us into a people who don't just say, I'm in this as long as it works for me, but if not, I'm out. But make us, uh, enable us to be people who can say, uh, I'm in this even when it's not convenient. I'm in this even when it costs me. Because Jesus is worth it. God, if you would do that through us, uh, we would stand amazed of you. And we would have to give you all the credit because we cannot do that for ourselves. So we pray that you would in Jesus' name. Amen.